Good Wednesday morning, and today we're going to be talking about what is happening in Asbury with the Christians there and the Asbury Revival, which you might be seeing a lot on the internet right now. Well, good morning, folks. Um, I was amazed to see the students get on Tucker the other night. So uh, it's a subject that interests me because, as I've said in this uh, podcast before, the one aspect of the Christian faith that reduces me to tears regularly is the eruption of grace into someone's life, uh, which, which, which is what conversion is, uh, a, t- a radical turning around uh, that comes out of nowhere so often. Not always. I mean, there are many ways of coming to faith. Uh, there's a long, slow burn of an intellectual. Uh, but even Lewis, who came the long, slow way, and step one he didn't even enjoy, he said, I was picked up and carried kicking and struggling into the kingdom, perhaps the most unhappy man in England that night, but that wasn't to be his long-term experience of what was happening. But that was certainly the beginning of his conversion. But uh, Asbury interests me because revival interests me. Uh, one of my favorite books of Martin Lloyd-Jones is called Joy Unspeakable. And Lloyd-Jones had a great interest in revival too, and that book is about joy, um, how it comes into our lives. And as Jesus says, I give you joy in a way that no one else can. And it's of a different quality entirely. Uh, he can make you joyful in the most awful situation. If you're doing what he wants you to do, you will be fine. Um, so watching the students on on YouTube was interesting. I mean, you don't stay there for days and nights over a long period of time. If there isn't something going on that matters, that that's feeding something in your soul, uh, and it, they're not using drugs, they're singing some rather tacky Christian songs, but there's much more than that going on. Um, my first sort of quasi yeah, quasi-personal engagement with this sort of thing was, was many years ago when we were on a short holiday in, the, uh, in Mid Wales. Um, and one of the people we met there, uh, her family had been, her brother in particular, had been converted in that kind of way in the Welsh Revival. Uh, they lived in uh, a mining area of Wales at that time when they, when they were young and uh, a revival began in that area. Uh, people were in the fields working and suddenly felt such an incredible sense of guilt and a need for repentance uh, that, and they knew something was happening to the church. They, they would go to the church to find relief and people were in church every evening. Uh, it was packed. Anyway, uh, I guess it was her brother. I may This detail may be incorrect in relationship, but uh, he came home from the pits and uh, wanted his dinner, and she was a bit late, and she said, well, the revival's amazing, and he said some rather rude things about it. A short while later, he found himself, oh, that's the way it worked now. I've got this come back to me probably. She was in church, and he knew where she was, and his dinner wasn't ready, so he went to fetch her, and he was fuming, and uh, he got to the church in in moments, he found himself walking across the top of the pews to get to the penitent stool in the middle, the, the bench where people were just crying and asking for mercy and relief. And 
That was him in a matter of seconds. Um, and it wasn't a one-off thing, you know, it didn't revert afterwards. The whole family was changed in its way of living as a result of that experience. Now, uh, I'm interested in this in many ways, and America is a very interesting example of it. The one thing you won't hear from the liberal elite is any discussion of Asbury and what it represents and what it might represent again in the history of America. I've talked about Robert Fogel in the past, who's the only person I've seen right recently in the last 20 years uh, from the elite end of the spectrum and actually have some respect for these things. Uh, Fogel being a, a, an unbelieving Jew, a cultural Jew, and a Nobel Prize winner in the world's most famous department of economics is not somebody who can be dismissed as liable to be carried away by emotional highs. Um, but he began around 2000 to be worried about his students. He didn't trust them anymore. This is a phenomenon that's across the board. Uh, it's worth, if you get a chance, talking to somebody my age about what has changed at the level of trust in the university and in our world as a whole. But Fogel, being the intelligent man he was, realized that this was going to be problematic for America. In effect, he predicted the uh, 2008 meltdown because he knew that the graduates of the programs he was teaching ended up on both sides of the argument in terms of controlling the economy, both the banking side and the government side, and they were in cahoots. The meltdown in 2008 was an ethical failure, and he predicted it, in effect. nobody I've not seen anybody pick it up anywhere and say that's what he did, but in my view, that's exactly what he said. Now, he then, being Jewish and very thoughtful, uh, he wanted to think his way through what was happening. And he did what Jews do, uh, because they're culturally attuned to reviewing their whole history when they have a question. Don't start yesterday. Get the context right. So he goes all the way back through American history. And he says, well, in the 1770s, when we got going uh, as, a, as a republic, this we were not ahead of the, the rest of the world, Europe in particular, in any category. It was a very near thing. You very nearly went bankrupt. If it hadn't been for John Adams, you would have done. Um, and you would have made it, but you did. And uh, he said, why has that happened in other places? And of course it hasn't. America is unique in this incredibly short history in, in historical terms of going from touch and go to the world's most powerful economy and the world's most powerful nation. And he said, well, better look at it historically. So he went back to, as far as the Puritans. He couldn't go any further. And he started reading the Puritans, and he said, my goodness, they've got a bad and very untruthful press. He used the word Puritan, and people always have curmudgeonly ideas, and he realized that that's simply untrue. They had good families. They, they were happy families. Uh, they weren't morose and miserable. They enjoyed worship. And, but they did have very high ethical demands. They insisted that the children speak the truth. They had a kind of um, 
corporate code or cultural code. Uh, yeah, they, they did not and would not accept adultery. They would not accept mar uh, sex outside of marriage. They, they were very old-fashioned and ethical in that sense. And, of course, its effect still shows to this day. Uh, Massachusetts has much better social statistics than most of the states of the Union, although it has one of the lowest rates of saying they believe in God, but they're still hanging on to those ways of behaving. Uh, the cultural elite may say, oh, yeah, you can do what you like, but they don't allow their children to do that. Yeah, they, they don't care that their views have destroyed the social structure of working-class environments by changing the school curriculum, but they send their children to private schools where the old curriculum is still taught. They tend to, to marry and stay married. A divorce is late because you have a responsibility for children, etc. So... Robert Fogel came away from that experience with a great deal of respect for what the Puritans had achieved and how important it was uh, to uh, the success of the American experiment. I mean, John Adams came from Massachusetts, went by horseback all the way to Philadelphia to, to get to the meetings, you know, quite astonishing, and then lived overseas uh, basically fundraising for America. It's a, a wonderful biography. If, you ha if as an American you haven't read it, first repent because you be, should be ashamed of yourself and then read it. Uh, wonderful biography. Forgotten who it's by now. It's on my shelf somewhere. But biography of John Adams, it'll come up. Um, but then he didn't stop there. He, he said, well, why do some things like this have a long-term effect and others don't? And he realized that they had to be renewed. Passion needs to be renewed. We can't succeed without passion. And the young people know that in some ways, and they're trying to find passion in all the wrong ways at the moment. What they're doing at Asbury is finding it in a good way, um, if that's what it turns out to be. So he, he then became quite knowledgeable about the 18th century revival in uh, the Western world. Very different from later revivals in that it was much more serious and had very good outcomes. Uh, uh, the 18th century revival uh, is well worth reading about. Uh, uh, even uh, Benjamin Franklin, who wasn't the, the most upright of men, but he was a good observer, became a good friend of George Whitfield, who was one of the inspirers of the 18th century revival, along with Jonathan Edwards. Whitfield was from England. And was an amazing preacher. He had, he had a voice which one actor in, in London said he would give his right hand to be able to say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. Uh, he could hold an audience, and he had a voice, as, as Franklin said, clearly audible at a quarter of a mile. Perfect for those days with no amplification. Um, and out of that came a whole ethos which Robert Fogel realized was important. Uh, that renewed the passion, but it also renewed the mind. Um, this is what happened in Europe too. Uh, to Tocqueville, who we'll get to later in this talk, um, went through a bloody revolution, but the 18th century revival in England was not bloody. It, When it began, it was said that every sixth house in London sold alcohol, gin, um, and murder was rampant. Uh, respectable men didn't go there. Um, but 
uh, Whitfield started to preach out of doors, not in London to begin with, but to coal miners near Bristol, uh, because he was an Anglican priest and he felt, as many of us feel now, that the church is failing to reach the needs of the people. And uh, given this amazing voice, he he went out to preach out of doors to the miners. And there's an account in uh, a Bristol newspaper of these miners coming out of their hovels, their, their shacks where they lived, uh, and white lines starting to appear down this, their cheeks as Whitfield's evangelical preaching brought them by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to repentance, and they wept. Now, the important thing about this that I want to make people think about because we're so worried about what COVID's doing to the culture and to the psychological state of the nation, etc. These degraded people, the lowest of the low, six weeks later before Whitfield went back to his mission project in America, they asked him to come and have a meal with him and lay the foundation stone of their own school. In six weeks, they went to hopeless degradation to hope and education. And out of the 18th century revival in Britain, uh, the Clapham sect was uh, one of the products of that. But it led directly and indirectly to the end of child labor. It was, it was uh, certainly involved in the, uh, the abolition of slavery and getting that going, uh, the reform of the prisons, the change of the economy so that the corn laws were repealed and in the long run that made it possible for uh, the lower classes to uh, to grow and the whole incredible expansion of Britain uh, intellectually and um, in inventiveness uh, can be traced back to that, that period uh, quite legitimately. So France had a bloody mess, literally, and uh, Britain had Whitfield and Wesley, and Wesley was a, an amazing example of what I, I hope is happening at Ashbury, because if that is happening, uh, this is very good news for America. Um, Wesley went to Oxford and was very pious. He, he was a bit of a prig, actually. Uh, he must have been awful to live with in many ways, uh, as I must have been too at one stage. Um, but... He did everything right. He became a minister in the Anglican Church. He went, he visited the sick. He went to the prisons. Uh, he became a missionary to the States uh, in Georgia, I think it was. And they sent him back because they couldn't stand him. You know, he, he couldn't relate to people. Uh, he wanted to, but he couldn't do it. And he got back to England. And as an Anglican minister, he happened to be, I don't know where it was, but he was asked to go and uh, pray with some guys who were going to be executed that morning. And he told them the gospel, and they believed it. And they repented of their life, and they accepted the punishment, and they died without trouble with it, because they'd seen a better way. And uh, Wesley wrote in his, his diary, I can save others, but who will save me? Because he knew he had seen something in those men that he didn't have himself. And... Uh, his brother was in a somewhat similar state, uh, the hymn writer, Charles. But Charles Wesley got saved first 
he they were in London and he found a little Moravian Brethren church in Aldersgate in London. And they had a lively face and he was captured for it, so to speak. He was converted. His life came and, and can it be and all those wonderful hymns followed from that. Um, he told his brother, you have to come and listen. You have to come to this church. And the rather pompous John said, oh, what have they to say to me, you know? Um, he'd just been to St. Paul's and heard sung even song, beautifully performed, but with no passion. But Charles persuaded him, and he went. And he writes that he was listening to a man reading not even the Bible, but Luther's introduction to the book of Romans uh, with a thick German accent. But he writes... My heart was strangely warmed, and I knew for the first time that I was a child of God. And the rest, as they say, is history. Within weeks of Whitfield and Wesley beginning to preach across England, little chapels started to be built all across England. The Whitfield led to the Baptist end of the spectrum and, and Wesley to the uh, Methodist end of the spectrum. Sadly, now in England, all those little chapels are being sold and turned into weekend housing. You see that in our world, too, in Canada. Uh, but in six weeks, that happened. And the whole ethos of England was changed. Now, we don't talk enough about that aspect of things, uh, but it's important. If Asprey moves on... Uh, the 19th century revivals, certainly the 20th century revivals, were not the same in that they didn't lead on to huge changes in how you live and how you think, and in particular how you read now uh, and how your church functions. Uh, the example of that, Billy Graham said uh, that he, if he did it all again, he would spend a lot much more, a lot more time in follow-up. We are such a distractible society now that we don't build on these passions, and that's what needs to be done. How we build on them is critical. So when Billy Graham went to Moscow uh, for an evangelistic crusade when, after the war came down, people ran to the front, so to speak, to get there. They, they thought they were going to receive something. Uh, well, they weren't ready for what was needed. They didn't have... 18th century revival conversions because a few years later they couldn't find anybody in, in in Moscow who was in any of the churches where you would expect them to be who'd been, so to speak, saved, converted uh, at a Billy Graham crusade in Moscow. Different. Um, my wife was converted to the Billy Graham crusade, but then she had a good church which does what comes next. Uh, builds a Christian mind. There's nothing in the New Testament about building your emotions. Of course, Christ coming into your life, if it's not emotional, how, how could you Im imagine a real contact with God that didn't affect your emotions? It's not possible. Uh, he made them. He made us that way. But the New Testament is about building a Christian mind. Um, I, I will be f watching what happens at Asbury and hoping that it does what it did last time. I mean, one of the products of the last one, I 
it must have been a good many years ago now because uh, uh, David Stevens was there at the time who became the head of Christian Medical Dental Association of the US and uh, he's just retired. But it certainly set him off on the missionary uh, direction and he performed amazingly. The best hospital, the best medical school in Kenya today was really built by him single-handedly almost. So, um, watch and pray. Uh, and for the churches, we need to think deeply about what's going on. I mean, we could all do with a bit more passion on Sunday morning, couldn't we? Not the worked-up sentimental variety that comes from happy, clappy songs. But... Uh, Doing, these kids have stayed in church praying and singing and enjoying the presence of God uh, is what they say is happening and I hope it is strangely enough one of the birthday cards I got last week was uh, had uh, reminded me uh, uh, from one of my grandsons uh, um, I'd introduced to um, George Herbert my favorite uh, English Christian poet but I, I missed this particular poem. It had a lovely line in it. He refers to us as ministers of state for praise. I mean, a minister of state, you know what that means. But ever thought of having one for praise? But that's what George Herbert thought of himself as, that, and was delighted that God had given him that job. Well, this would be a different world, the sort of world you want your children to grow up in. So, those of you listening, uh, I hope you experience something like that. Wouldn't we all enjoy that? I mean, Peter, writing to the people who had had that experience at the beginning of Peter, they were going through rough times, the like of which we can't imagine. Nero was, was in charge. And he was writing to people who'd been thrown out of Rome by Nero. Their nearest and dearest had been used to light up garden parties. They dipped... Christians in pitch and then nailed them to a tree and lit it for lighting up a garden party. Uh, Nero was not a nice man. And Peter writes to these people, and this would not pass the sensitivity uh, tests of the modern world, but he writes, I know you've been going through various trials, just various trials, thrown out of your home, a refugee, your nearest and dearest, mutilated and martyred. And he says, various trials. He says, because I know that you have a joy beyond words. He had never met them, but he knew that they'd had a genuine coming to Christ, and therefore he knew that they had a deep flowing joy beyond words. Uh, there's that famous hymn written by the guy who uh, lost his family uh, at sea and he went to the same place and wrote uh, a famous hymn that I'm having difficulty recall but I know that it is well with my soul yeah, it is well with my soul it was written by a man who just cast a, a wreath on the sea where his family had died that's Christianity at its best and that's what we need not the milk and water version that we get most of the time so, not what I intended to start with this morning at the earlier earlier in the week, but I hope it's of interest and 
stimulating to people. Thank you, Dr. John. And we hope you guys enjoyed that. And we hope you're enjoying these talks. If you are, please leave a review, give it a like and subscribe. And with that being said, we will see you guys next week as we jump back into the CMDA talks that happened in Mobile, Alabama. Mm -hmm.